Good morning. Oh, that was much more response than Liz got. Um, My name is Kristen Johnson, and I have the privilege of serving as the shepherd of communication here. And as Liz mentioned, we are in uh, moving into the second prophet in our series, Who You Call in the Minor Prophets. So we'll be in the book of Joel today and next Sunday. And Joel is quite short, despite how long that reading might have felt. It's only three chapters. So would you challenge yourself to read through or listen to, if that's your preference, Joel multiple times this week? It's short enough to read in one sitting or listen to even on a relatively short drive. Uh, If you're following along in one of the journals, which is the ESV, you may have noticed in Hosea or already in Joel that sometimes the language and sentence structure of all the prophets, it can be a little confusing or frustrating. Um, I noticed that at times. It's not the way we speak naturally. And one of the best Bible study tips I was ever given was to use multiple Bible translations. Regularly reading a variety of translations increases our understanding. Every translation has strengths and weaknesses, but all of our modern translations are good. Um, While I've been studying Joel, I've obviously used the ESV, which we'll look at today, but I've also read the New Living Translation, the NLT, and the New International Version, the NIV, and the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, and there's a lot more you could choose from. And hearing how different scholars translate the original language, it adds depth to our understanding. And with a Bible app these days or using a free website, you don't have to buy a physical another Bible, another Bible to read it. You can just use something free and have access to multiple translations. It enhances our reading. So this week, when you're reading Joel, will you try a different translation than your go-to just to supplement what you're already doing. Okay, that's enough preamble. Joel, we're here. We, uh, we don't know a whole lot about Joel. Should be a short sermon. I'm kidding. Um, we, we don't know who Joel really was. In verse 1, we get his name and his dad's name. But we have no other biographical information about Joel. We're not told who was king or if there even was a king. We're not given historical names to cross-reference in Joel's message. The people groups and nations that we're going to come across, um, they're present throughout much of Israel's history. So they do not anchor us in time in any meaningful way as we read. And the major event that caused Joel to receive and deliver this word from the Lord is a plague of locusts. And while it was clearly a devastating event, it does not show up in any other historical record. So given all of that, we cannot definitively place the book of Joel on the timeline of the Bible. It could have been pre-exile. It could have been post-exile. There's good support for both views. We do know that it was not during the exile, since the locust plague centered in Israel and around temple worship, and the people were not in Jerusalem or worshiping in the temple while they were exiled in Babylon. And normally, if if you know me very well, you know I want all the possible context. So I thought I would be frustrated by the lack of context in Joel, and instead I've come to truly love it, Being unable to tie it to a specific point in Israel's history actually makes it easier to see the timelessness of Joel's message. The timelessness of God's message through Joel is beautiful. It was intended for a certain audience, and they had direct experience with the particular locust invasion that Joel begins with in chapter 1. But the message itself 
would have been relevant for all subsequent generations of Israelites. And it is still relevant for us today, despite the fact that we are not Israelites, we do not live in Jerusalem, and we live under the new covenant that Jesus made possible. Some of what Joel wrote, whenever he wrote it, has already come to be. And yet it is still coming to be and will still come to be. That's good and exciting news. Uh, Joel begins by calling the people together to pay attention to what's happening and to make sure future generations never forget. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. Okay, stop and think about this for a moment. What is it that we fail to pass down? What are the family stories we do not tell? They might be the embarrassing stories, or maybe more than embarrassing, they're the shameful stories that we try to bury rather than retell. We try to hide our shame. Uh, I grew up with very similar stories on my mom and my dad's side, two generations above me. But I grew up with one grandma who did her very best to bury that story she was ashamed of. She lied about it. She destroyed photographic evidence. It was a secret. It couldn't be talked about. She spent the whole rest of her life, the majority of her life, denying and trying to hide it. On the other side, my other grandma was an open book. She may not have been very proud of every part of the story, and maybe she was ashamed of it, but it happened, and it was part of her story, and therefore it was part of our story, and so she told it. The generations after her know the truth, because she passed the story down, even if it was hard or painful or maybe shameful for her. And the generations are healthier for it. So what happened in Joel's day that he wants to ensure the generations hear the truth about, even if it might be shameful? Look at verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The shame is obvious, right? Um, before we can get to why that might be shameful, we need to understand locusts. Okay, the average locust, according to recent research on my part, is fairly solitary. Okay, it lives its life quietly. It does not actually cause much damage. It just lives its life. But at certain times, when conditions are right which apparently is when there has been lots of rain and it's, the vegetation is lush and abundant, something triggers a change in individual locusts and they become social. Biologists call it their gregarious phase. So biological changes in their body has caused these solitary locusts to be attracted to one another and to congregate together and to reproduce at an incredible rate. Uh, in, in the gregarious phase, a generation of locusts, whatever exactly that means, they can multiply 20-fold in three months. And then that multiplication continues. They become an enormous army of very hungry insects traveling in mass and eating everything they can find. 
Each locust can eat its own body weight every day. I'm glad we're not locusts. Okay, you can have 240 million locusts per square mile, which together are capable of eating the equivalent of food for 105,000 people a day. But locust swarms cover far, far more than a square mile, and they last for more than a day. Locust swarms in recent years, this is still something that happens. In recent years in Africa, they have been as big as 100 square miles. In Kenya, there was one that was 25 miles long and 37 miles wide. That would cover the city of Paris, France, 24 times over. So when you hear about locusts in the Bible, you're hearing about billions, that's billions with a B, billions of bugs densely packed together over a wide area of land, doing incredible agricultural damage and inducing terror for days to months and sometimes even years. So Joel is not telling us about some bugs being a nuisance. Joel is telling us about life-altering devastation. Pick it up in verse 7. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Joel is calling attention to something even bigger than the land being devastated and people having nothing to eat. The ability to worship has stopped. Offerings cannot be made in the temple because there is no grain to offer. There is no wine because there are no grapes. There is no oil for sacred use because there are no olives. And this might feel strange to focus on to us because our worship looks different today than it did during Israel's time of temple worship. We often think of worship as what we've been doing this morning, singing and praying, maybe giving monetary offerings or acts of service. Our worship services do not include offerings of fresh produce or animal sacrifices or the use of wine or oil. A locust plague and its agricultural devastation would not necessarily stop us from worshiping. But in Joel's day, much of the process of worship, it was ritualized. There were prescribed steps to be taken. People brought their offerings to the priests. And for some, maybe many, it had become transactional. I, the average person, would show up with my grain or drink offering. The priest would do what he's supposed to do with it. And then we expect God to bless us, to protect us, to take care of us. Do you see the danger of that becoming rote and formulaic? So what happens when locusts strip every tree and plant of its leaves and fruit and even bark? How do the people do their part so God can do his part? What are the people supposed to do now? Joel tells them. He says they're to fast and lament together as a community. The priests, the religious leaders, are to lead all the people in crying out to God. Joel 1.14, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The locust plague warrants a communal response because Joel tells us in chapter 1, verse 15, all the way way through chapter 2, verse 11, that the locusts and their consequences are related 
to the day of the Lord. He paints a vivid picture of the destruction. The vegetation is destroyed and even their animals are dying from lack of food. He compares the harsh stripping of plant life to seeming like land scorched by fire. Everything is laid to waste. And Joel says God sent this severe plague that wreaked this havoc. It calls back to Exodus 10, the eighth plague on Egypt when the locusts came. Look at Exodus 10, verses 14 and 15. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. That was an act of judgment from God on Egypt, the oppressors of God's people. And Joel is now saying that God is sending an act of judgment on his own people. Do you see where the shame and desire to bury the story might come in? The day of the Lord is a phrase that occurs five times in Joel and many times in other parts of the Bible. And every time it's used, it's talking about judgment. Sometimes it's judgment on Israel. Sometimes it's judgment on other nations. The day of the Lord is when God intervenes to deal with sin that has reached a climactic point. The day of the Lord is when God directly responds to sin. And here, Joel sees what is happening with the locusts as the approach of the day of the Lord in dealing with Israel's sin. We see it three times in our text today. Joel 1.15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The CSB translates the end of verse 11 as, Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? God's judgment is not something to be taken lightly. And it's interesting that though the day of the Lord is about judgment for sin, Joel never tells us what the sin is. What is God judging his people for? We are not told. And that's a gift to us. This is part of what makes Joel timeless. We do not know exactly what God was judging his people for with the locusts. But we can recognize that all people, at all time, us included, have sin that is intolerable to God. We all deserve God's punishment, God's judgment, because we've all fallen short. Hopefully we can see, we can each see ourselves in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can all see ways that we have turned our relationship with God into ritual or transactions. Perhaps we've minimized our worship to motions that we assume or we hope will result in God's blessing on our lives. If we do X, God will do Y. Daily quiet time equals God protecting our family. Maybe Tithing equals financial security. 
Or showing up to church equals nothing too bad happening to us. Or maybe we're not even doing that much. Maybe we're resting on praying a prayer, acknowledging our need for Jesus, and now that we've sealed our eternal future, we're living our life without giving much thought to God at all. Maybe we're going through some religious motions, but really we're not pursuing relationship with God. We're not working out our salvation as Paul challenges us. If that's the case, we are failing to live out of and into the freedom Jesus provides for us. If we're living with a getting into heaven attitude, but not loving God and loving our neighbors with all our hearts each and every day, what is our worship? Do you see how Joel's words can be timeless? Maybe you're not feeling like you personally are just going through religious motions right now. You may be earnestly pursuing Jesus and vibrantly loving others. I hope that's true and I'm grateful if it is. And yet even if you personally are wholeheartedly walking in step with the Spirit, you can no doubt see ways that we collectively may be struggling. As the church, we are one body made up of many parts. And your part might be thriving on a mountaintop right now which is wonderful, but maybe another part or parts are dragging in a valley. There is a collective element to what's happening in Joel and to what happens to us. We, just like the Israelites, are in this together. We're one body, one people, not as a country like they were, but as the people around the world who follow Jesus. So when God is going to judge his people, what are they supposed to do? How can they survive it? Joel tells them beginning in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? God tells them that he does not desire a ritualized worship or going through motions and checking the right boxes at the right times. Verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. God wanted the Israelites to have a genuine, from the heart, right relationship with him. He did not care about, or at least he did not prioritize, the externals of their fasting and and tearing their clothes as a sign of grief or mourning. He wanted their sin to be so grievous to them that they were tearing their sin away, ripping the idols that had taken a piece of their heart, away from the place that was reserved for God alone. When it says, return to the Lord your God, that implies they had turned away from God. Have you turned away from God? Do not rush past that question. Have you turned away from God? 
Have you turned a little away from God? Or a little more than a little? Are you saying, it's okay, I can see him out of my peripheral vision? I didn't go very far. It's not like I turned my back on God. Maybe you didn't even turn your body, the direction of your life, away from him. But you turned your eyes. Return to the Lord your God. Aim your body, the direction of your life, the direction of our shared communal life, right at God. Put your eyes on him. Have you turned away from God? Have we turned away from God? Verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That is the God we are looking at. The gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love God. Yes, he is also just and does judge sin, but he is love as much as he is just. Both and. We cannot separate them. Unlike Joel's original audience, we are living after Jesus came to earth as the Messiah. We are not living in a system of sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. His shed blood on the cross and victorious triumph over death means we can have a relationship with God that exceeds what Joel was describing. Between verse 17 in chapter 2 and verse 18, something happens. But Joel did not write it down. It appears the people respond to God. It seems they must have done what Joel was challenging them to do. They returned to God. They repented. They fasted and lamented from their hearts, not simply in rote actions. We know this because look at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. God was the source of the locust invasion that decimated their grain, wine, and oil. It was not a random agricultural or natural event. It was the hand of God at work. It was a day of the Lord, God judging his people for their sin. And when the people turned back to God, He tells them he is sending relief and renewal of what was destroyed. And there's a really beautiful pattern in verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2 where God responds to and restores what happened in chapter 1. I'm going to read that whole section and then we'll look at each response. Verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Verse 21, fear not, O land. Look back at the first part of verse 10 in chapter 1. It says, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. The ground itself mourned. And now in God's restoration, he tells the land, 
He's addressing the land, and he tells it not to fear. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. God has restored the pastures from what it said in chapter 1, verse 18, where it says how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. God is restoring not only for the benefit of the repentant people, but when the people repent and turn back to God, God restores for the benefit of nature, of the land and the animals. Do you see any callback to Genesis 1 here? In Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God goes on to say that he gave, has given the plant life to the people and the animals to eat. And then in verse 31, it says, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. God's creation is good. It was the sin of humans that affected all of the way the natural world worked, both in Genesis and here in Joel. And here in Joel, we have a picture of humans turning back to God, repenting, and God restoring the natural world for the benefit of the repentant people and for the benefit of the animals in the land itself. God's care for his creation is beautiful. There are three more acts of restoration in Joel for us to look at quickly. The second half of Joel 2.23 says, For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. So God restores the water that it tells us in chapter 1 verse 20 was gone. It says the water brooks are dried up. In Joel 1.10, we heard the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Now in Joel 2.24, we learn... The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And finally, in Joel 2.25, God says, I will restore to you the years. Years, don't miss that. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. That is in direct response to what Joel challenged the adults to tell their children to pass on for generations in Joel 1.4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. God restores fully the devastation he has brought in response to his people's sin. It does not undo it. The devastation was real. This was not a threat of locusts and their repentance stopped it. No, the locusts came and they destroyed the land and had a real and harmful impact on people's lives and worship. There was suffering because of their sin. The pain of suffering, the memories of fear and anxiety, those did not go away when God restored. But God not only judges, he also restores. And restoration is beautiful and a gift. But the lesson is not only to trust God's goodness and restoration, but for us to learn to pursue right relationship with God in the first place. 
a healthy relationship with God, it, it will not be perfect. We're not perfect. But it will mean we are not simply trying to avoid being punished or trying to get a reward. God is not a transactional God for us to appease or manipulate. We are to pursue a right relationship with him for the sake of right relationship, out of our love for him that exists because he first loved us. In Joel, God's people had turned away from him. It reached a climactic point of judgment, a day of the Lord, that resulted in him sending literal punishment in the form of a plague of locusts. And Joel calls the people to turn back to God, to repent, and they do. And God responds with restoration. Do you remember last week, Kellen reminded us that Hosea taught us that God is faithful to punish and God is faithful to restore. Joel is showing us the same truth about our God. And why does God restore in response to people's repentance? Joel 2.27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. God does not restore because the people deserved it. They did not actually make up for or set right all their sin. They were not capable of that, just as we are not capable of dealing with our sin for ourselves. No, God responded to their genuine repentance to show who he was, who he has always been, and who he still is. It's his unchanging character. And we, like the people in Joel's day, have the opportunity to evaluate the state of our hearts. Have we turned away from God? Individually or collectively, have we turned from God? Even a little, or maybe a lot. Is there anything else rivaling God for being the center of our life, the center of your life, the center of our life? Whatever our eyes are fixed on, whatever direction our life is headed, it shows our allegiance, our worship, what matters most to us. It could be something good, our family, our career, an academic pursuit, our country, a philanthropic endeavor, financial security, our reputation as a church. But there can only be one central aim to our individual and collective life. Those secondary things, even the good ones, they become idols if we put them in the central place that belongs to God alone. God told the people that he was in the midst of Israel. That's amazing. Sometimes I think, oh, I wish I, wish I could experience that. And then I remember he was present with them. But church, he is present with us. Do we live with the awareness that God is in our midst? Think of our study not too long ago. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's you, plural. You, the church, the body of Christ, are God's temple. God dwells in us together, in our midst. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's your personal body. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him, talking about Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Each of us is sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is present with and in us as individual followers of Jesus. And we communally, collectively, are God's temple. God is in our midst in life-altering and powerful ways. Is he the center of your life and our shared life? God's words through Joel, I am the Lord your God and there is none else, are as true today as they were when Israel first heard them. There is no God like our God. May we pause today to be grateful for his presence and may we examine our lives to see if we have turned away from the pure pursuit of him. And if we have, may we humble ourselves and repent and turn back today. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You are faithful to punish and faithful to restore. Thank you. Will you reveal to us the ways and the places that we have turned from you? Will you give us the humility and the strength to turn back to you today? God, will you soften us to your spirit's promptings to to leave behind the shame we may feel over our sin and failures and instead to follow Joel's counsel to tell our stories of your mercy to the generations after us? May we not bury or hide the ugly parts, but God, may we courageously acknowledge our personal and our communal sin so we can boldly proclaim your forgiveness, restoration, and redemption through Jesus. Amen.